Harnessing Evolution with Artificial Intelligence. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. James Field, founder and CEO of Lab Genius. Welcome, Dr. Field. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. The headline on your company's website says, Harnessing Evolution with AI. Explain what that means and why you started the company. So I'm going to actually answer those questions in reverse. Um, when I was growing up, I'd walk around and, and I'd see everything that was incredible in nature. And I see all of the plants and animals around me, not as so much as organisms, but as solutions to problems. And that got me thinking around this, this thing called sequence space. And that's this idea that everything that could potentially exist, even theoretically, everything from uh, dinosaurs to dragons exist in this um, hypothetical solution space where each one of those potential organisms can be reduced down to a, a, a DNA sequence. And the coolest thing around thinking around the world like this um, is, is you work out that to explore that space is really just a, a search problem. And if we're going to build really awesome things out of biology, then we need to get really good at searching this, this um, uh, hypothetical space, this, this sequence space. And it turns out that there are ways that we can do that already. So Darwinian evolution, which is obviously this autonomous process that we're all really familiar with, that this is a process that's given rise to yourself, myself, and everybody else on this planet, is just a way of searching through this, this potential sequence space. Um, but the problem with Darwinian evolution is obviously it's incredibly slow and can yield non-optimal results. And so what I was interested in is how do you start searching this space more rapidly so we can build really cool things uh, out of biology to solve some, some very meaningful problems. And it's not really just about AI, but it's really around a confluence of technologies that enables us to uh, start grappling with that problem. Everything from robotics to software engineering to hardcore molecular biology to gene synthesis to gene sequencing. These are all technologies that you can combine together and, and start to use to, to search this space in a really um, systematic, systematic and, 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 and robust way. And that was my motivation for starting the company, to basically be able to search this space to create meaningful solutions to, to real world problems. What is empirical computation and why is it important to the work that you do? I would say empirical computation is, is probably um, one of the most important technologies that you've never heard of. And so it's it sort of, in my mind, is this um, change in the way that the scientific innovation process is, is, is going to be done. Empirical computation really looks at the world in terms of potential search spaces. So let's say that you and I cook up some crazy idea of an organism that we, who we, want, we want to make. We start off from a premise that that organism already exists in, in, this, in, this, um, in this solution space. And it's just a question of, of finding it. Now, if you're a, if you're a human, um, the way that you approach engineering biology is you try and grapple with the complexity of life in your brain. And so you try and reduce it down to, say, a series of genes, each of which you think you, you might sort of understand. And then you try and grapple with that complexity and say, hey, if I kind of assemble this mishmash of genes, maybe it's going to build this cool new organism. And it turns out it probably, probably won't work. And the reason for that is because engineering biology in this instance is just far too complex for the, for the human brain to, uh, to really compute. 
And so empirical compute offers us a way of exploring these really high dimensional complex search spaces um, in a way that the human brain just can't grapple with. And so the way that the empirical computation process works is it's sort of like a, a process of um, systematic innovation. So in the case of uh, engineering biology, you can reduce everything down to, in this case, a DNA sequence. And every DNA sequence has, as everybody knows, four different letters, A, T, Cs, and Gs. And really the task of engineering biology is just knowing about the right way in which you order those letters. But of course, the, the, that as a problem is this huge combinatorial search problem. There are far, far more ways in which you can order those letters, those DNA letters on a, on, in, in a sequence than there are, say, atoms in the universe. And so empirical computation is this process that we use to search through that space. And so uh, the way it effectively works is you generate a lot of data in the lab. So you'll, you'll fabricate a lot of these different DNA sequences, and then you'll test them. Uh, and then you'll try and understand the relationship between the sequence and the function. And then you layer on machine learning on top of that uh, in order to fundamentally understand those relationships and effectively allow you to, to search, search around in that space. Uh, so it's almost like taking this, this process of classical scientific innovation and putting it on these uh, robotic platforms. And it may help to sort of contextualize where that sits relative to other, other technologies. Um, so, so traditional, say, simulation is where you fundamentally understand uh, how a system works and then you try and model it on a computer. Now, for biological systems, you may not actually be able to model them from scratch. And so that's where you can use this kind of, this kind of approach to grapple with that sort of complexity. Now, you can actually custom build individual DNA molecules, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and so actually, this is where it gets super interesting because building DNA isn't actually super hard at all. It's building the right DNA sequence. And so uh, every time we run a set of experiments in the lab, we may create trillions of new DNA sequences entirely from scratch. So these are, these are genetic designs that are, uh, that are, are software, believes will be high performing so that they believe will encode something of value. And we can, we can build trillions of these different molecules in parallel, uh, and then we can test them physically in the real world. Now, even though that sounds like a colossal number, actually it's, impossible, it's possible to test a trillion things and find that none of them work. And that's because you're kind of trying to search around in this solution space that is infinitely large. And so it's not just around creating a lot of DNA sequences, it's around creating the right ones and being able to learn from what works and what doesn't work so you can search through that solution space. You mentioned software. Um, what role does AI play in all of this? Well, AI or, or machine learning is the thing that fundamentally enables us to grapple with this complexity. So you, we can generate a ton of data in the lab, and, and typically that data looks like um, taking many, many strings of different genetic designs encoding to DNA and assigning some kind of fitness score that we've measured here in the real world to each of those. And then we digitize that information using next generation sequencing. So we'll physically create trillions of genetic designs, test them in the lab, use next generation sequencing to go from the world of atoms back into the world of bits. And that's that data that then gets fed into the machine learning algorithms. And the machine learning piece is really about understanding what is that relationship between the DNA sequence and its fitness. And then using models that it builds up from that data to try and uh, predict the performance of DNA sequences that have never even been fabricated before. And that, that's the approach that 
enables us to uh, capture a lot of the nuance and the complexity of these biological systems and ultimately search through this, this solution space. You say that knowledge and instinct may be hard-coded in DNA. So if that's so, would it be possible to one day build a data set and program specific knowledge and reflexes into organisms? Yeah, I don't see why not. Um, I think you, know, you look at you look at the animal the animal world and, and you see how um, uh, it's absolutely mind blowing how organisms can can be born and they've never learned anything and and they have all of this knowledge hard coded into their in, into their brains, which is functionally um, really you can reduce it back down to the DNA sequence. So I see absolutely no reason why you can't hard code information in. Now I'd say the challenge for that is when you look at humans relative to other organisms, uh, when we're born, we're comparatively helpless. And I think that's part of what it means to be human in the way that it's almost like being born with um, very weak instincts or few instincts actually then sets you up to learn everything in a way that you, you wouldn't have been able to learn had all of that information been baked in from, from scratch. So it may be the case by hard coding and additional information, um, uh, there may be some kind of detrimental effect. But where I see this playing out in a really interesting way is this thing around human sexual attraction. Um, and that's this piece where uh, we talk about this solution space, this hypothetical solution space um, that sounds super abstract and most people kind of grapple to think around, what does that actually mean? What does it look like? But the really awesome thing about evolution is it's baked in an inherent understanding of what that solution space actually looks like or the topology of it uh, into our brains already. And, and that, that's manifested through human sexual attraction in the sense that um, the best way to kind of visualize this sequence space is to think around uh, like habitable planets adrift in the universe, viable areas of this sequence spaces are there very few and far between. So if as a human you were trying to reproduce with say like another species, that's something that's like inherently amusing because you know that there's probably going to be no viable out out offspring for, from, that, from that union. Um, and so human sexual attraction is really all around how do you maximize the probability of being able to uh, successfully produce a, a viable offspring. You already identified that as humans, we're very different than any other species. So this leads me, or us, I think, directly into the question of humans playing God. Is there a limit to how far we should take this technology? I mean, could this technology escape our control? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of interesting things to unpack there. Um, first off, I, I think the piece of um, playing God is it's a really interesting question because for so many different people, it means something different. Um, in this case, I just kind of take it to, um, to kind of interpret it as this is an incredibly powerful technology. Uh, what are the second order effects of, 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 of what happens when we grapple with it? And I think that's something that we're still trying to get to grips with and come to terms with because it's such a powerful technology. It depends exactly how you utilize it. And, and one way to, to think about this is um, in the way that Darwinian evolution gave rise to, to us today, um, you can think of things like artificial intelligence as a natural byproduct of artificial um, uh, artificial intelligence being a natural byproduct of Darwinian evolution. But here's where some, something sort of new and different is happening. That artificial intelligence or, or those machine learning capabilities are then being reflected back onto life. And so you have this, this interesting cycle where 
um, natural biological intelligence is giving rise to artificial intelligence, which will then fundamentally reflect back on biological intelligence. And so uh, the rate of change that we will experience as a species and across the living, the living world, it's set to dramatically change. And that's going to have huge implications, both first order implications and second order implications. Some of those will be incredibly beneficial to humanity. Um, other ones we can't even predict. And so with any of these technologies, it's the onus is on uh, practitioners such as, you know, um, uh, our team here and everyone else grappling with this on, on how we deploy it and what are the problem sets that we choose, choose to solve. For us, we, we primarily leverage this technology to try and cure diseases where conventional methodologies have failed. Um, and that's something that I'm sort of especially positive about because I think that deploying the technology in this sort of way creates a, a, a net positive uh, for the world. So, okay, let's, let's discuss problem sets. What are the practical applications of this technology? Yeah, well, <laughs> I would say the biggest part of building an empirical computation engine is that it's really expensive to actually do it. Uh, you can see some of the equipment in, in the background, and that's really just, um, uh, just scratching the surface of what you need to build one of these engines. And, and the reality is that the money to do that comes from uh, mostly venture funds. And so if you're going to be financed by, say, venture capitalists, then the problem space that you can start addressing actually gets constrained massively by what are the different areas that are going to deliver a return within a relatively short five to 10 year time span. Um, and so I, I will think, I think most probably we'll just see this technology in the short term um, be leveraged against what are the really meaningful problems that we can't solve using conventional methods. And drug development is, is a prime example of that. So uh, where biotech and pharmaceutical companies have really struggled to develop certain types of, of medicines, uh, this, is, this type of approach uh, is perfect for tackling those sorts of problems. Wow, very exciting stuff. And you're certainly working on uh, the future of humans. Dr. James Field, founder and CEO of Lab Genius. If somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to find out more about the work that you're doing, how can they do that? You can just go to the website and there are contact li links on the website, labgenie.us, or you can just email me directly at james at labgenie.us. Sounds good. And if you guys want to find more of my interviews, you can do that right here or go to tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching.